and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Percy Hornack, and I'm here this week with Julia Doolittle, who is the GM of our Lancer campaign, which is airing right now. And you heard Session Zero last week. What a treat. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about theater, tabletop games, and the game that she is running for us. So thank you so much for joining us, Julia. Oh, thank you so much, Percy. I'm so excited to, to talk to you. Hell yeah. Uh, so I thought we could kick it off uh, by asking, how did you get into writing for theater, film, and TV, and all the various things that you write for? Yeah, well, my folks are actors. They met in the theater. And so uh, I got the, the bug pretty early. The, the entire family is in the business. My sister does costumes. Uh, no one ex- escaped except for the dog. Um, it's not too late for the dog. It's, it is too, unfortunately, it is too late for the dog. I'm so he sorry. Was a, he was a great dog. <laughs> I'm but so sorry. He was a wonderful dog. That's right. You've begun this interview by bringing up my dead dog. Well. My dead dog that I had as a baby. That's how you started. Well, it could only get, it could only get better from here. Don't let, th- don't let Percy cut this out. Don't let Percy hide. Um, so I started, I think like a lot of kids, I just did, you know, school plays and, um, I thought, oh, I, I know that I love this and I really want to do this. And I, I thought for a while I, I would be an actor and I started acting at, um, Sarah Lawrence and, um, uh, I went to this this abroad program called BADA, which is basically a one year abroad for for Americans who want to study British drama school, and it was it was an amazing experience. But the second semester, I got like a really small part in the year end show, and so I had a lot of free time, <laughs> and I started to notice a lot of particularities about being a young person uh, sequestered with a lot of other young people who didn't really know how to navigate or communicate in relationships. And so I wrote a play about that, sort of about, uh, you know, the basics of of hookup culture and, and why being this age, at this age, it's so hard to be emotionally vulnerable. And I was like, you know what, I... I think we're going to do just a reading in my living room because I was, uh, I don't know, uh, ar- arrogant or confident, whichever whichever one. I do like to say that every time a woman gets called arrogant, an angel gets its wings. <laughs> um, and it went really, really well. And I realized, like, I had a, a real ownership of that craft and of my um, identity as a storyteller and as, like, a, a person who had something to say with my stories. And so the next year, which was my last year in college, I, I took a writing class. And uh, at, at the end of that class, my teacher called me into his office and he said, hey, um, what are you thinking about doing after graduation? And I had this uh, internship with a, with a theater company uh, that was going to pay, not much, but it was going to pay me something, which was like, at that point, the dream for a college graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, well, I think that if you want to do this, you could. I, I mean that. And uh, I, I realized I really did. Like, it was basically the only thing I, I wanted to do with my free time was write, especially write plays. And I felt like in that, in that moment, I think it was like a very special moment in my young life where uh, I certainly, looking back, didn't know everything I wanted to say and even some of the things I said would come out clunky and and strange in my plays but I had 
either the youthful arrogance or the blind confidence to just um, say them, to just write and be be proud enough of my work to move to New York City and get actors to do readings and sort of integrate myself into the community. You know, eventually I just um, realized that like being a, a playwright and a writer in general, I started, I transitioned to uh, writing film and TV too a little bit later in my career uh, was just what I was. It sort of screwed myself over and like, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd found that thing where, you know, I think sometimes in our, in our lives, we are, um, we sort of are, are going through, we're exploring and trying to find think parts of our identity. And, uh, sometimes we hear something either said from someone else, or we have an experience where we get to, uh, be that, be that thing briefly. And it sort of feels less like a big revelation and more like something you've always known about yourself. Uh, and it's like the ground sort of solidifies beneath you and you go, oh, that's it. That's right. And uh, that was me and me and writing. So. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, I love that. Uh, thinking like very specifically about some of your of your plays, you've explored fantasy and sci-fi in Username Prometheus and The Absentee. And I'm curious to hear what draws you to tell plays that are set in space or MMOs or this sort of like very specific kind of geeky genre. Oh, uh, well, I should say that I write a, a bunch. I never really want to write the same play twice. So I mm. also write a bunch of plays that aren't genre or different genres. I've got like a historical romance. I've got um, a bunch of, of straight jobs. I've got like a zombie play. <laughs> um, but the, those two are definitely very much like um, sci-fi. Username Prometheus is especially in nerd culture and geek culture. It's about um, people inside of, of an MMORPG uh, and, and the people who they are outside of that game as well. Um, to be honest, it's it's just my life experiences, what I've sort of, um, the things that I've loved growing up. You know, I played a lot of MMOs growing up and username Prometheus is pretty directly inspired by um, my experience as a teenage girl meeting people who I never would have met otherwise in real life uh, via this game and feeling, you know, like I didn't quite fit in in high school, but online with these people, like I, I really did. And the older I got, the more I met people who who in some ways were like a- atypical to society, even though nowadays, like being a geek is so mainstream, <laughs> like mm-hmm. video games are so mainstream. Like, I-, I think that but but still, I do believe that there are like subcultures within like just any sort of larger geeky genre that are still very niche. Mm-hmm. And that's where you'll find uh, people who still sort of are atypical. And uh, that the, the, a place like this, this game was a place where these people didn't feel judged by society and didn't feel like outcasts and felt empowered. Uh, and so I really wanted to to do that. And I also like loved the idea of combining the world of an MMO and sort of the look of a Greek tragedy. So it's got like a chorus uh, of players. And uh, I was like, I imagined the set and I write this that it's got kind of this amphitheater like quality where a lot of the game takes place with this very small kind of like naturalistic set for one of the character, the main character's apartment, like in the middle. I wanted to be really expansive and, and weird with the actual space and what we would expect from it. Um, and with my own voice in that play, because I, I have a pretty, uh, I would say, um, 
I write mostly realism with like some, some not, I guess a little bit of magical realism thrown in there sometimes. So I wanted to also stretch my voice. Um, the absentee, uh, was, I, I've always loved sci-fi, uh, in general, but that was actually very specifically inspired, uh, by, uh, reading a, a new story about how we are planning now to send manned missions to Mars, which may take up to nine years back and forth. I, I don't remember if it's nine years there and nine years back or nine years back and forth, but it was, it was also right after Trump had been elected. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool right now, actually. Could I go? <laughs> Can I sign up? I would love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of being facetious, but I actually, uh, and we can talk more about that if you'd like, but I, I was very, I was pretty angry in a really kind of um, personal way. And I use that play to sort of work through my grief. And I think that all the genre elements were actually sort of healing to me, like in a way, like sort of going into a light, a, a light fantasy for that, that made it a little more comfortable for me to explore like grief, grief and frankly, fury that deep. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people find a lot of solace in sort of genre stuff for that reason, because it feels like just close enough that it's like a safe space to explore those things without it being like writing a play about Donald Trump. So I, yeah. Oh yeah. And I was committed to never doing that. Like ever. I would I love him to, that. to die in obscurity. I would truly love it if, if his name never, you know, I don't know. It was after that happened also, there was all of this. I think the same thing happened with COVID. There was this sort of call for, theater to have this immediacy because we're supposed to be the most immediate art form, which I think is a, is a complicated and, and mostly wrong take. I mean, I don't speak in absolutes. I think, (laughs) I don't think artists should speak in absolutes, but I, I remember being like, I, and when people saw the play, they were like, I would much rather watch this, uh, than watch a play about, how America let let us down, like where we watch people reenact election night and someone tells their racist uncle to go to hell. Like I was like, yeah, no, I I get it. I don't want to watch that either. So why would I write it? Yeah. And we don't have to spend a ton of time like talking in depth about your play unless you would like to, but I Sure, yeah, I don't know. I feel well, I feel like a lot of like genre plays that get a lot of like that people talk about a lot, like use it very transparently as like, this is a metaphor for real life in a way that this play doesn't, which I really, which I really like about it. It's just like, you know what I think that theater should be less afraid to do is be transportive. And mm-hmm. I think that actually oftentimes people say things like, oh, this is transportive, but, it, but it's not in a, in a weird way. It's always very much like be in your body and feel like feel who you are and you're in the theater and you know and you need to think about all these things that you definitely don't think about all day anyway Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i i think that actually just sort of letting people get caught up in an in a narrative in a story is something that the theater is still kind of weird about or at least has become weird about in the past um since I've been in it, at least, I think it's, you know, there's, there's, once again, we never speak in absolutes. There's a ton of incredible work that's very 
much in that space of like, we are here as ourselves, like speaking to you, this is a, and you're you and you, and we don't want the fourth wall. We don't want you to disappear. But I also think that there's room for basically the audience to, in a way, disappear behind that fourth wall and to, um, let themselves be be caught up in the moment of watching the story because actually when you don't feel so seen you I, I feel like actually you let yourself feel a little more in a weird way I mean maybe that's uh, just my experience of like when people are just enraptured they let themselves laugh and cry and um, be vulnerable honestly and feel everything that that you're supposed to feel for the the characters on stage and I, I don't I don't know why, especially with genre, I think a lot of people in theater immediately judge it as um, either like juvenile or not accessible or niche or um, not art. And that's a that's a thing that genre has always had to contend with, like even in standard publishing. I mean, they don't shelve they don't shelve genre fiction with normal fiction that doesn't get put in the same section of the New York times. When you review it, they have to have their own awards because it's never, it's very rare that a genre book is ever going to win the Pulitzer or something, something like that. Uh, and I do think that's because uh, at least American society uh, still views that stuff as for kids or for I don't know, people who um, who aren't adult enough to enjoy things in the real world, like this rich family who doesn't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's what adults like. They like that grandpa was a secret Nazi and <laughs> that one of the kids is thinking about jumping off a bridge. That's what they love. And they like when they sit on the couch and they yell at each other. And they're like, ah, I wish you die already. That is the cool adult play that everyone wants to see. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, and I, I mean, I have absolutely gotten weird responses to the absentee, like, oh, well, we already did a play with a woman and she's talking to a robot. So <laughs> and we did it five years ago, so we can't do this too. And I'm like, um, I mean, I've, I've, it's really weird. What a bananas <laughs> thing to say to someone. <laughs> it was very, but oh, the way, the way that theaters will turn down your plays by saying we just did it. It, it is bananas. It is bananas. I have gotten like, we already did a play with six characters. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we already did a play that was vaguely about politics. And I'm like, of course you did. Everyone did. <laughs> what? That's so silly. It's, it is. It's totally silly. I, I think it's a combination of people don't really know how to say say no. People don't know how to say, honestly, we want this other person because they're more famous. Or we don't want to piss this agent off. Or mm -hmm. it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't like fit with what our subscribers like. Yeah. Uh, and so they make up some weird reason. Like we already had a woman talking to a robot five years ago. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I always I also get frustrated by like because I as a person who also writes like genre plays I get told very frequently that they're inaccessible and I'm like I don't know. If I walk in to to see the absentee and there's the wreckage of a spaceship all over the th like I get it. I know where we are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> I can figure it out. I I don't especially in um, you know, in our current media ecosystem where like the movies that make all the money are about people with superpowers who go to different dimensions. I don't understand why theater is like, it's inaccessible to have a spaceship. I'm like, I, I think what they mean is they're, they're worried that it sounds like something 
their subscriber base doesn't want to see, which I think is a, you know, a, a bit of a, a bit of a disservice to, to their subscriber bases. Yeah. They're missing out on really cool women talking to robots. <laughs> God, I just, um, I don't know. I think that I would love to see, uh, I mean, like I'll say, so, you know, vampire cowboys started because I think, uh, Queen knew that nobody would do those plays, right? And then they were intensely, incredibly popular. And, like, now he's writing Rye on the Last Dragon. Like, it's just like, y'all are fools. (laughs) Yeah, because I would imagine that the average, like, American person spends more money on comic books and tickets to see Dune and Star Wars and the Avengers than they do on going to the theater and maybe... Maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's a reason for that. I I just think it's not like there there shouldn't be so much shame. And like, I I do think sometimes you read a theater season and it sounds so depressing. And that's not me being like, don't do any serious plays that engage with serious questions. But it does seem like every single like plays introduction is is uh, basically like Kristen was a girl. He like like <laughs> Elliot, Elliot is a is an elephant. Like Elliot is a dolphin. Like Kristen is a girl. Elliot is a dolphin. The world is drowning. A play about <laughs> climate change. And you're like, what the freak? Like <laughs> I don't know what I okay. They're like a play about climate change and how we're not paying attention. And you're like, oh okay. And then like they're like, oh by the way, he's not really a dolphin. He's a hot man. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do with this. Um and and it's like, but. Every single one is like that. And you're just like, oh, this actually doesn't sound that interesting. And also, I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. the biggest deal. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm going to go and get yelled at for 90 minutes about how I personally am not recycling or whatever. How you are personally killing Ellie, Ellie the Dolphin. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, I'm directly responsible for Elliot the Dolphin's You, uh, Yeah, demise. Elliot's like gonna do a monologue in really low lighting with sort of the sound designer will do some underwater sounds and mm-hmm. and every now and then he'll like bob up for a little bit of air from his blowhole the mm-hmm. director thinks that that's like the the coolest thing <laughs> they're like i think that while you're doing the monologue about how you saw your mother get harpooned just bob up every now and then <laughs> and, and you're getting air and just take that breath just take the breath elliot <laughs> <laughs> but think about your mother. Think about the harpoon. Okay, take the breath. Now oh the harpoon. <laughs> and now pick someone in the audience who was the fisherman who killed your mother. Make sure they're like somebody who's really, really old. <laughs> <laughs> um, shifting, shifting gears away from Elliot the dolphin <laughs> as much as I would love to develop this world with you. Um, yeah. I know you said you, you tend to mix things up. You don't tend to write the same sort of thing twice, but I'm curious either if there are sorts of things that you particularly gravitate towards thematically story-wise or like what is the motivation behind like I want to I want to keep mixing it up I want to keep doing different stuff oh well I would say that the the thing that I've always noticed like kind of connects connects my writing is that I really do have a hopeful vision for humanity in general. I think that's great that that's remained intact through everything I've been through in my relatively young life. We've all been through, I should say. Uh, I I say that I have sort of a pro-human uh, spirit kind of attitude in all of my my work. And I would say that all of my work is more or less about people trying their best. I would say that 
there's always a string of, of humor in my work, even in, even in the pretty sad dramas. Uh, I, I would say, like, I write a different play every time because if I've already, if I've already like written the play that has basically enough emotional energy to produce a, a piece of writing that I think is good enough to share with actors, to share with a director, to put, to put the, the force and the emotional energy and the hope and the, and the dreams of, of having it be realized, which is all a lot of emotional work, just fairly pretty exhausting and a lot of just general labor. I feel like I, I've spent it at that point for mm. that particular piece of work. I just don't think I could, I can't go half-assed on that. And yeah. therefore, by the time the play is done, whenever I decide it's done, uh, I think that feeling is spent. And if I went back to the to the page and was like, oh, let's do it again, I would say to myself, we did that. What else do you possibly have to say? Um, or, and so I, I think that's why I'm always writing something different. And I, I, I genuinely just follow my instincts when it comes to what I want to write and what sounds like a good idea and what sounds interesting. And I think that uh, I might be, I might have like lucky instincts that I don't think I've, I've treaded over the same ground yet. Yeah. I, I just think that a play is a, is a pretty, a pretty big wind up punch. And you might, you might have like exhausted that one once you, once you throw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, Shifting gears even more, um, I've heard tell that you are a, a big Vampire the Masquerade fan, but I'm curious. Oh, who told? Who Todd. told? Todd. Don't let Todd get out of this. Um, <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Well, yeah. So I'm curious about your entry point into tabletop role-playing games, what some of your favorite games are, including Vampire the Masquerade, and yeah, just sort of how you got into that sort of sphere you bet. I actually didn't start playing tabletop until like college. And I, I actually didn't really start even playing as a character. My sister was running a shadow run campaign, actually. Ooh. And I was visiting from college and she was like, come and be an NPC in my shadow run campaign. And I was just like such a weird ham that I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure. And I, I did it. And I like, they gave me some dice to do some random roles, but I mostly just like did voices and dressed up and had fun with my friends. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. Like I should do this uh, more often. And then in my early to mid 20s, I played this incredible game of uh, Apocalypse World, of a mod of of Apocalypse World with a a group of people who are still just some of the people I feel closest to in my whole life. I loved that system and I loved that game. And then I, uh, my, my sister also, my sister's like a huge D and D fan. She's, she's like, has, she's one of those people with like nine characters in their, um, uh, oh my God, what's the D and D online platform. Yes. She is like nine in there and she's always making more and she's always tweeting about, Oh no, made another one, (laughs) ordered another miniature. And I'm like, you have a problem. Um, (laughs) but she got me into, uh, on, it was, it was on the, the platform that critical role used to be on geek and sundry. Yeah. Uh, they were doing a campaign, uh, of Vampire the Masquerade called LA by Night that, um, Jason Carl. It's so Carl, good. 
it's it's wonderful. Jason uh, is an incredible storyteller, which is what we call the GM in Vampire the Masquerade because we're hella extra. <laughs> and uh, I was really interested. I kind of loved it. And I looked I looked into the to the book and the system and I was like, wait a minute, this is great. Because for, for me, the thing I've always loved the most about tabletop is the role playing. Um, you know, this particular system we're playing on the podcast, very crunchy combat, like the crunchiest combat I actually have ever done. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade is very low combat. It's just role play, role play, role play. Uh, and that is really what, what drew me to it. And also the, the world is so, is so awesome. The whole like world of darkness, cause they have like multiple games within the universe. Uh, and it's this great, like, Oh, like we were just talking about it, it is these, all of them are wonderful, uh, th- genre metaphors for things in the real world that usually have to do with, um, effed up politics, uh, or how humanity has turned its back on nature and things like that. And mm-hmm. I've, I'm like, I freaking, I freaking love this. So yeah, so I've, I've run one of those campaigns for a while. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say that those are the systems I have the most, uh, contact with and, and now Lancer. <laughs> Yeah, please don't just dis- please use all of the study that you've done on the laser <laughs> system uh, for future things. Lest it all be for naught. Well, it wouldn't be for naught because we've done a lovely podcast together. But no, I think actually uh, the more I the more I do it, the more I would love to play another campaign of of Lancer or even continue this one if if folks want to. Just because I I feel like there is there's so much fun stuff in there. There's so much variety of stuff. I think they've done a really good job of making something, making a really, really fun toy. It's just really hard to work. Like, but once you can do it, you know, you'll enjoy the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can put, I think put a pin in Lancer for a second and circle back in a little bit, but I'm also curious about how sort of, if at all you view like your tabletop role-playing stuff and your theatrical writing and how those maybe inform each other or how those interact with each other? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because tabletop storytelling is collaborative by nature. Um, It has to be, or else it's no fun. But I also know that satisfying stories have to be connected by theme and they have to have stakes and risks and payoffs and conflicts and uh, characters that mean that mean something to each other, uh, NPCs that mean something to the characters. And so whenever I'm crafting a campaign, something I, I always ask is I ask the players to, you know, bring their ideas for what they want to play forward in terms of characters. And then I kind of see what thing all those ideas have in common that they might not have even noticed, you know? And I am like, okay, I think that is a subconscious theme that they're all thinking about. And I think that's what we're, what we're going to go with. Um, for instance, in the vampire, Ma- the masquerade campaign that I did all four players, uh, in, in that game, you're playing a vampire. So you have like a sire that made you a vampire. And usually you have a pretty bad relationship with that person. Cause you know, they killed you. Um, <laughs> it's usually, Toxic. Um, And all four of them picked women. And they all had toxic relationships with these women. And so I was like, okay, I am going to make sure that the um, antagonists of this campaign are all women. And they're all women that I think people at this table, like the human players, would root for. But like their characters are going to feel conflicted about. And it's going to be, the theme overall is going to be about like 
the the shifting of power from the old generation to the new generation because that was also a theme that just kept coming up for them um and a theme that they all they all wanted to embrace too was uh can you can you basically run from responsibility when it's it's thrust upon you uh can you just hide in the shadows more or less if you if you want to have any sort of control over your life especially in a world like this uh, and so I, I was like, okay, we're crafting, we're crafting the world and the initial antagonists and plotline around that. So every single character can have a touchstone within that. And so in that way, you know, once the game actually starts, you have to roll with the punches. You know, you have to, and and the players are always dictating where I go next. But when the session ends, I basically take everything they say, and I, I do sort of put on my like screenwriter playwright hat, and I go okay, what's like the coolest, based on all of this, what are, what's like the coolest opening for the next episode or the next session in general that makes all of these choices they made like matter? Because mm-hmm. that's something else that people like really want in games and they also really want in stories. They want the choices that the characters make to matter. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it's of course a different art form because like you're never going to be able to pay off every plot line in a role playing game, you're, which would be sloppy. In a, you're never going to be able to, in, in a, something you're writing by yourself that's sloppy. But in role playing games, it, sometimes scenes just happen and, you know, we love them and maybe we'll do a callback to them many, many episodes later. But, you know, the experience of doing the game happens has to be paramount and it's especially if it's not for an audience if it's not streamed for an audience so it's just it's just a slightly different experience in that way Mm -hmm. that i'm curious about to what like so as a gm do you bring like say you're going into like a session zero or like a character creation do you bring anything in or is it purely based off of like what is what do these players have in common and what they're doing yeah i i usually come in with very little i try to spend a lot of time listening because in a lot of systems, there's a ton of variety in what you can do, especially in Lancer. There's a, there's a load of variety into what kind of Lancer team you can have. And by listening really intently, I can ask, uh, and I think people might have heard this in session zero, you know, I ask like questions that I hope will spark ideas and get them to think of more things about their character, which in turn inspires everyone else at the table. And we start to have kind of a whiteboard group think we don't have a whiteboard obviously uh but i think that if i come in with too many preconceived notions about what i want to play i'm not gonna pick up on some really great questions to ask that might lead to like an even better idea uh and and at the end of the day i i as a game master do believe the game is for the players not for the game master uh i have a ton of fun obviously making it myself but i think when you volunteer to be the game master, you are basically throwing the dinner party. That's my, that's my analogy. So. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That's something I, I agree with you, but I think about it a lot because I think a lot of like tabletop discourse TM is very much like the GM is a player too. And the GM is this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, yeah, but the, a different kind of player. Like, yeah, I, I don't, you know, once again, I don't speak in absolutes maybe. Yeah. And I think it might change on the system. I I don't know. I just sort of, maybe it's just the way I enjoy playing. I think it's like, how can you be, you know, you, you, you were sort of leading the charge. So you have to, uh, know a little bit about what's going down in, in terms of maybe what's coming next or what you're plotting for the next character. You could be of course overjoyed and surprised by what 
the players do. But I think, and I think that might be a good in, in general attitude for everyone who's playing a tabletop game to have to have respectful surprises for everyone. <laughs> but the joy for me is having them go, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. What are we going to do? Blah, blah, blah. That for me is is really joyful. So that's how I like to play. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine on the player and it's really, really satisfying when you come to the table with like, here's this thing that like is really specifically keyed into like a thing that you said, here's the way that what you've done is meaningful. Um, and that's really, I bet that's really nice. Yeah. I, I would assume that, you know, if somebody describes to you like an NPC, they really care about, and then you show up and you like play that character for them. I think they get really jazzed about it. I think that they really like it. Uh, I would. I, I think it's great when people, uh, you know, in in like, you know, in improv, giving people information as a gift. And I know I, I, I said this to the to the team. I don't think we said it on a podcast, but like t- tabletop isn't exactly improv because people have to have ownership of their own character. And in improv, you can just walk in and be like, you're my sister. And they can't say, no, I'm not. I don't like that idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't like it. And also, I, I, I want to choose my own destiny. But in a, in a tabletop game, you know, people have to have ownership. And so um, you you have to do kind of a, a yes, a yes, because I was listening. I was listening really hard. And I know what you want to do as a player. And I you just went with a really good tabletop game. You just develop sort of a vibe between all of the players and uh, the relationships just feel really, you just start to trust everyone at the table. And so the relationships you're building start to feel really natural. And uh, the next thing you know, you know, like there is, I don't know, synergy is a terrible word (laughs) to use. There's, there's just chemistry. Chemistry is the word I'm looking for. There's chemistry. You just build chemistry. Um, Yeah. I think it's really, I think it's really great. Um, thinking specifically about Lancer, uh, I'm curious about a your like relationship to the genre. If you have a particular investment in like mecha stories specifically, and if there's any sort of place that you're drawing inspiration from for the game of Lancer that we're airing on the podcast, you bet. Uh, you know, I uh, am a big here. Here we go. You've heard it here first on Dungeons and, Dra- and Drama Nerds. I am a huge weeb. Julia <laughs> Doolittle is a gigantic freaking weeb. I have loved anime since I was like a little kid. I've loved Gundam since I was a little kid. I have Gunpla all over my silly little house and my, (laughs) (laughs) um, and, and I love space operas, uh, a ton. They are ridiculous. They are dumb. I have cried to so many of them. The same shot, basically, the same storyline of a of the sad teenage mecha pilot who really just did this to like make sure his sister had food, like dies saving the hero and he goes, "It's fine. Just end the war." And I'm still crying and I've seen it 9 times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm and I'm ill, but I won't change. And <laughs> I don't I think not, you should. I will not seek treatment. I refuse. And so I love this genre. And I remember telling telling Oh my God, Todd. So Todd and I have been friends for a while now, and we. Oh my gosh, we. Uh, maybe maybe Todd will want to cut this out because he's like, you're giving away our best IP. But we <laughs> constantly joke about Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark, the Mecca anime, where Hamlet pilots a, a giant mech and like he fights Laertes in mechs. 
I mean, it it did it did like work too well. The more that we did it, like like he's on like Denmark is a giant space shuttle, and you know his he sees his father as like a ghost mech that he fights out in the in space. It was very it was working too well, and so that's how Todd discovered how much I love. I love mech anime. Uh, for Lancer specifically, um, actually, for this game, you know, the more we talked about what we wanted to build together, it, it actually came to be like a little less Gundam and actually a little more uh, Outlaw Star, which is not a technically mecha, but the spaceship has little arms that fight, which was stupid, but I still watched it all. <laughs> and love it. And love it and would watch it again tomorrow. But truly, the Outlaw Star is the spaceship, and when it wants to grapple, it releases tiny arms, and it fights other spaceships with its tiny T-Rex arms. That's amazing. And, and, and also, this is, I mean, it's just... It's, and also, its computer is like a hot woman. Like, you can't... A hot woman android. Like, the anime is off the charts. But it's got this grungy, cool, urban uh, cyborg vibe mm-hmm. that actually uh, I think is is really applying to our game and that our game is not taking place in a grungy, it's actually sort of a sterile atmosphere. It's sort of like a, a, a very, the city that they live in is very particularly curated to feel uh, safe and untouched by the nastiness outside. Uh, but it is particularly like an urban kind of feeling uh, where there are uh, bounty hunters. And these happen to be corporate bounty hunters, but uh, so that's sort of a lot of the visuals. Whenever I'm like visualizing things about the game, I keep vis- like leaning into sort of those those uh, gritty visuals of, of Outlaw Star. I haven't yet thought of the, the tiny little arms emerging from the ship to to sort of slap the other ship around. That mental image is never going to leave my brain, and I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> I'll send you the real image just so you can know I'm not lying. Like, <laughs> I mean, I believe you. I don't think you, I don't think you would lie to me about this. <laughs> Like when um, I tell people that there's a horse that pilots a Gundam and G Gundam and people are like, that is bullshit. I need, I send them food psyche immediately. I'm like, yes, that is a horse piloting a giant horse robot. That's so How? good. No one knows. <laughs> they never explain. I have a theory that I think anything is immensely funnier when a horse does it. And I don't know why I think that's true, but I, but I do think horses are the funniest animal that could do something that humans do. I completely agree with you, except for running. I actually think humans look hilarious when they run, and horses <laughs> look majestic. But it, anything else, yeah, totally. Horses yeah. look way funnier doing it. Agreed. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, I think it is here. Thank Percy. you. I think it's here right now. I think it's the moment. I have brought it into the space um, yeah. that I think horses are funny. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm also curious about how it's been to learn such a complicated, crunchy combat system, particularly because the RPG, like half of Lancer, well, it's not really half. It's like a, it's like a third um, is kind of just like vibes. It's sort of like do whatever you want as opposed to the combat. Yeah. I was shocked when I get to the, got to the narrative part of the section and it said just vibe, 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 vibe for like five pages. I was like, mm, okay. Um, are there dice to vibe with? Like, do I vibe with the D20? Do I vibe with the D6? Uh, it, it was really hard. I feel like I could, I feel like I could study for the LSAT now. I feel like I could maybe pass the bar. 
Like I could just like put me in there, coach. I can do it. Uh, the, the, the biggest thing, and I think that's why the people who made Lancer very smartly developed this web app called uh, CompCon that we're all using, which takes out a bit of the math you have to do in terms of all the specialization that your particular mech can have. Because depending on your build and your core bonus and your uh, weapons that you've loaded on and your abilities, it, it, the your role is going to be a lot more complicated. And so say, same thing for me, even though I, I as the GM are only controlling the, the NPCs, I still have to keep track of a, of a ton. And CopCon helps with that. I think they realize that no one is going to be able to pencil and paper this. It's too hard. And I think that that is, like I said, it's both sort of a boon and a bane in that it's really not approachable as a system. But once you do learn it, the variety of of things you can do and actually the strategizing of the actual fights is incredibly fun. Like for me as the GM, I made sure to make fights for, for them that are pretty hard because they, I want to see them figure it out. I want to see, because they've given themselves all these very cool powers. And if they think creatively, which you can do in Lancer pretty easily, it's not like, okay, I aim, I attack, I roll, did I hit? Like it, you can think incredibly creatively with what your mech can do in terms of, um, you know, terrain and ranged attacks, uh, cover, you know, like there's a lot of, of really cool stuff to think about. And I think that when I, when I realized that after doing a bunch of practices and a bunch of simulations, I was like, okay, I am going to create a fight that specifically challenges them to be really creative in combat. So combat can feel narrative because it's got twists and turns. Cause it's like, holy crud i didn't see them doing that and i i think i think we're gonna achieve that i'm really excited hell yeah yeah can't brit's mech turn into like a fortress yes or something like we, that? Uh, uh, uh brit's mech can deploy a whole fortress to um cover a fellow mech basically from attack uh and uh i mean that fortress you know that that's what it's made for to cover mechs from attack but also like who's to say you can't use fortresses like that to block exit pathways or to like um capture an enemy an enemy mech in a particular if they're if they're in bad terrain like there's like a ton of creative ways to use whatever weapons or abilities you've uh, outpitted your mech with in order to make the fight really interesting and also i think that lancer does an incredible job of making the combat feel as real as possible when it comes to of course like giant robots fighting but you know you really do feel like Every every hit like smacks you around because you have a lot of HP in in general, but because you your HP can go down to zero and then reload, but there's always going to be consequences. I think it does an amazing job of actually keeping the stakes high for the whole combat, and th- that is not something I'm used to. Like I said, I'm used to like okay, I aim my my arrow <laughs> hits go me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna describe it with a lot of flair and then like something cool I said and it oh, wasn't that cool. So can we forget? I said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything ha- that's happened so far that's like surprised or shocked or delighted you? Oh, tons. I don't want to give away some of the relationship stuff that's really delighted me about how the characters are already bouncing off of each other and, and how the NPCs I, I've built for them, they're doing a really good job of, of playing with me. I don't want to give that stuff away before the episode comes out. 
Um, the thing that has delighted me that I don't think is a spoiler is how excited everyone is about their mech. Like everyone has built these things like like they're a kid with a bunch of connects and they're like, mine can shoot venom from its from its face. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, mine has the has the best gun. <laughs> and, and it's so great. It's awesome. And it's just it really makes me feel like like a kid watching mecha anime and being like, that, that one has a sword because it's the best melee. It's a melee fighter with two swords, two energy swords, and it can combine to become a two-ended energy sword for his ultimate attack. And that's that is what's going to happen. And so every time somebody uses a new power, I am just completely delighted. I'm 12 years old again and drawing my own robot robot and being like, but mine's going to look like a girl. Cause I'm a <laughs> feminist. <laughs> um, amazing. Yeah. We will, we will not spoil anything. You'll have to just come back and listen to the, to the actual play. Is there anything else that we have not talked about that you feel a burning need to talk about on this platform? <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, okay. I wouldn't say a, uh, a burning need, <laughs> But I will say, because there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, other things that desire a brain need. I will say that what um, one one thing I miss about being together in, in human in human meat space is is coming together in these sort of group experiences, which I think is so important in, in general to, to theater as well. Like, I think that part of theater is is physiological is being together and sharing space and and sort of the ritual of preparing yourself to go to the theater and being sat down and my favorite part of any play is the moment right before it starts whether it's great or bad that's still my favorite part every single time I would go just for that honestly and uh tabletop games uh make me feel the same way uh I love being together and being so vulnerable and having so much fun, especially when you create a safe and fun environment to play these games where everyone can be sort of like, like kids again, a little bit, just not being ashamed to play pretend and to put everything into it and really act, especially when you have people who aren't, I mean, we have people who are actors in ours because this is a theater <laughs> podcast. <laughs> what do you don't get to usually act or be actors or something like that, but they still want to play and they want to emote and they want to tell a story that's, that's important to them or that they discover is important to them. I, I think that's just really, really beautiful. And it's a, a wonderful way to get to know people and to express ourselves with each other. Um, and so I, I hope that, um, the more, the more, and I'm knocking on every piece of piece of wood in my tiny little home, uh, I'm knocking on every gunpla. I, I'm hoping <laughs> that coronavirus continues to improve around the world and that we get back to being, um, messy humans and messy human meat space together I, I miss it. <laughs> Big same. Um, I think that's a, I think it's a lovely note for us to end on. Um, is there well, anything, thank you. yeah. Is there anything that you have coming up that you would like people to know about or a place where people should go if they want to look at your, follow your work, look at what you're doing? Oh, sure. Well, you can go to my website, which is, uh, www.juliadoeselot.com. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
And, um, you know, I would love to tell you some things that are, are happening. They're all NDA'd, unfortunately. And so, lots of redacted things. Many, re- I have Beep coming up in the summer. <laughs> Hopefully Beep will be um, premiering in October. I cannot wait to announce that I have officially been slipped. Beep, Beep. <laughs> Beep. And I know what you're thinking. Like, that sounds a little porny. And it is. But Beep is really excited about it. And I think we're going to win an Emmy. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would love to. Uh, but if people want to know, I'll post some post some updates over there. And, uh, yeah, that'll that'll probably be hopefully in like a month. I'll have more to say. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about these things. This was lovely. This was super lovely, and I'm so happy to be a part of the Dungeons and, and uh, Drama Nerds fam. I'm so happy to be amongst such uh, our repertoire company. <laughs> you have to be like in the niche nerd corner of tabletop and theater to get into this club. Yeah, you have to you have to be the geek of both geek worlds. Well, there's more than two geek worlds, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you have to be the one who was born with one one tabletop eye and one theater eye. They're looking for the chosen one, and you, could it be you, born to a humble village out somewhere in the (laughs) northern highlands? No, surely not. And yet, why have you always been able to summon fire from your hands? God, what I would give to summon fire from my hands. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com. And tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.